Thanks for joining us for the Physical Faith series. Let's prepare our hearts for what God has to say to us, and please give a warm welcome to Dr. Derry Long. Hey, good morning, Journey. What a beautiful day. And we've chosen to spend it inside a room with no windows. So, way to go. Heavy commitment. Proud of you. Good to see you. We're on the fourth of a series of five messages on physical faith. Hebrews tells us that our faith deals in many invisible things. And the Lord gives us a number of physical things that represent those individual in, individual invisible things. So we've looked at communion, baptism, confession, and today we're going to be looking at foot washing. Next week we'll look at the Bible. So let's jump into the scriptures. It's 17 verses out of John 13. It's a little long, so stay with me as we see what Jesus was doing. Keep in mind that this event of foot washing happened within 48 hours of the crucifixion of Christ. Let's read. It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing. But later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then the Lord, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath need only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this tender and yet bold moment in the life of Jesus, we pray that your Holy Spirit will take it in its pieces and parts, and apply it to each of our lives according to our need. In Jesus' name, amen. This was a signal event in Jesus' life. And it points out one of the true natures of the gospel of Christ. You see, splattered all through the gospels, as Jesus makes point after point, 
illustrates principle after principle, gives example after example. He works with an unusual set of people in order to make his point. For example, the leper. In the New Testament, a leper was considered so unclean that if another person were to walk towards the leper, the leper had to shout out, unclean. They were entirely socially ostracized from everything that was part of the normal routine of a village or community. He used the Samaritan. The Samaritan was considered a half-breed. And the Jews considered the Samaritan so unworthy that if a Jew were to touch a Samaritan, they would go through ceremonial cleaning and cleansing to get themselves back to a pure place after having touched a Samaritan. He talks about the tax collector. The tax collector, in bed with the Romans, much like the Vinci French government during World War II that became a puppet government for the Nazis to use and was reviled by most of the nation, so the tax collector was in bed with the Romans, actually partners in extorting money from his own people. The crucifixion, one of the most ignoble ways you could possibly die in Roman times. And then foot washing. Do you know that foot washing was so low that many slaves were not even required to wash people's feet? Not even slaves. It was an activity beneath many slaves' job description that you would wash somebody else's feet. And yet Jesus, only hours from his crucifixion, in order to communicate what his kingdom was about, knelt down at this Last Supper, put a towel around his waist, which was, which was an act of a slave, poured water in a basin, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. This would have been an abhorrent act, one that they could hardly comprehend, that Jesus Christ himself would foot wash. So we're going to look at five aspects of foot washing quickly this morning and talk about the nature of the kingdom. And if you're a believer, it is in that kingdom that we live. And we receive these examples. So let's look at the first one. Verse 1, second part of that verse. Jesus is doing this to show the full extent of his love. The full extent of his love. That his love is not only for those who have their lives cleaned up. His love is for the leper, the Samaritan, the tax collector, the adulterer, the, cruci- the crucified one. The full extent. In one, one translation uses to the uttermost. I was speaking at a conference in Minneapolis, the Minneapolis area, only a few weeks ago. And uh, many years ago, I spoke at a youth rally over in uh, North Dakota. And someone came up to me in the conference I was just at and said, you may not remember me, but I was at that youth rally you spoke at in North Dakota. And he said, you said something there that I have remembered ever since. And the Lord has used it again and again in my life to encourage me. I thought, man, I, 
I, I'm, I'm hardly able to remember what I said at 9 o'clock to repeat it at the 11 o'clock. <laughs> to try to... Try to my, my daughter, when she gets tapes of my sermons, usually gets all three just to figure out what I'm, what I'm saying all together. So, uh, all these years later, he says, I said, well, what did I say? He said, you said that God loved me so much that he carries a picture of me around in his billfold. God loves me so much he carries a picture of me around in his billfold. We don't carry random pictures of people. This is my wife and I. Can you blow that up a little? No, I guess not. <laughs> a little slide presentation here. <laughs> We're in St. Louis getting ready to take a boat ride down the Mississippi. This is even smaller. This is our whole family, three kids, two grandkids, all at Disneyland at Christmas. God loves you so much that he carries a picture of you around in his billfold. He loves you to the uttermost. And he doesn't take it out. He doesn't take it out and slip it in a drawer because that's the scope of his love. I grew up in the Watergate era when Chuck Colson was one of the Watergate politicians. His office was right next to the office of the president, President Nixon, as happened with many of those in the Watergate uh, scandal. He ended up in prison. In that whole course of events, he became a believer, but while he was in prison, he had trouble with one of his sons. He had a friend named Harold Hughes. Harold Hughes had been governor of Iowa and then senator from Iowa. And Harold Hughes, knowing that Charles Colson was in prison and was having difficulty with one of his sons, found an obscure law that could be argued before the court which would allow someone to take the place of someone else and finish out his sentence. And he went to Chuck Colson and he asked him, would you allow me to argue this point before a judge so I could finish out your sentence and you could go home and take care of your son. To show the full extent of his love, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Let's look at another one. The second is Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God. It takes a strong ego to be a good servant. It takes a strong ego. To, if you don't have a strong ego, then servanthood feels like oppression. You have a strong ego. You have to know who you are, who you are in Christ, who he's created you to be, and what you carry in your heart. Because when Jesus knelt down to wash the feet of these disciples, he didn't feel less of a Messiah because he was washing the feet of the disciples. He was able to do that because he knew who he was and he could stand in that reality. I once went to a conference 
in Minneapolis at Bethel Seminary and University. In those days, the president of the seminary and university was Carl Lundquist. You may not know his name, but in the evangelical world, he was a big name. I was going to hear Paul Reese, and I walked into this classroom, and uh, a lot of people were there to hear Paul Reese, and there weren't enough chairs. I looked over, and here they had a closet open, and, and Carl Lundquist, the president of the institution, was setting up folding chairs. It seemed as natural as breathing. Now, if he was setting up folding chairs every day, they'd have a management problem. You don't have the president of the university setting up folding chairs every day. But on that day, there was a need, and he didn't think the need that was in front of him was beneath him. When I was uh, working my way through college, I worked for a farmer one summer. He had two hired guys, me and this other guy, and I'm not particularly mechanical, and so sometimes he would just have me go do grunt work. He'd say, you know, we're going to go out in the field, but uh, would you mind going over to that uh, cattle pen and just cleaning out all that old straw? So at the end of the summer, I'm ready to leave, go back to college, and he says this to me, which just surprised me. He said, you know what I like about you working for me? It didn't matter what I asked you to do. You just went and did it. It just didn't seem like you were grumbling that the other guy got to drive the truck and you were cleaning out this straw. Well, the thing that struck me was it didn't even occur to me to think that way. I worked for him. and He was paying me. And he had a right to tell me to do anything he wanted. See, the disciples, they were always bickering with each other about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. Jesus kept trying to show them that that discussion itself didn't belong in the kingdom. That his kingdom was not operating on, a, on some image or status symbol or who's greatest. In fact, it operated quite differently. To, to express the full extent of his love, that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew who he was. Let's look at a third part of... Uh, Foot washing. He said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That last phrase means you have no fellowship in my ministry. He was saying the essence of the kingdom is servanthood. The essence of the kingdom is not ruling. It is not who has the best job. It is servanthood. And you'll have, if you don't let me wash you, you'll have no part in the fellowship of my ministry. You won't understand what this ministry is about if you got a problem with me washing your feet. There was a fourth. This was the uh, tough one. Jesus said, now that you've seen what I've done, you also should wash one another's feet. They'd have been happy to wash Jesus' feet. But he didn't ask him to wash Jesus' feet. He asked this bickering group of disciples to have enough humility to wash each other's feet. Surely not Peter's feet. Not John's feet. You see, they knew each other. They knew what went on in their lives. 
Were they actually worthy enough to have their feet washed? He says, you wash one another's feet. You submit yourself to one another. You humble yourselves before one another. When uh, you remember Chris Townley, our youth pastor, 29 years old, just moved to Phoenix to be with his wife who's in uh, medical school. We worked for some time with Chris to find a way to actually plant a church with him because he has that hunger and desire, plant a church with him in Phoenix. Because he's a millennial, he particularly want to plant, he wanted to plant a church with a team. And we were working with him on that, but his team down in Phoenix kind of fell, fell apart. And uh, I thought, if he really wants to plant a church in Phoenix, I got this idea. And so I called him up. He was in Phoenix. I called him up. I said, I want to... <laughs> Actually, I left him a message. And then he called Bob Schwan and said, Derry called me. Do you know what he wants? And <laughs> Bob says, we'll just call him. So Chris Downley calls me up. And I said, hey, I got an idea. You won't have to be down there very long before you get a team. So how about while you do it, I'll just come down and work for you. You can be my boss. I said, I'll... I'll call you up in the morning on the way to the office and find out what kind of coffee you want. I'll bring your coffee to you and then you can tell me what you want to do during the day. And he started laughing. <laughs> I said, now, now, Chris, I can laugh with you, but I'm actually serious. I don't have any trouble being one of your employees working for you. I've been in this business for 40 years. He's not even 40 years old. I've forgotten more than he's learned. Twice. <laughs> but I respect Chris Townley. And I wouldn't mind. I've been part of three church plants, and I wouldn't mind finishing up with a fourth. So I told him I was a little irritated when he decided to take this other job. And he says, no, I, I got this other job for three years. So the Lord's requiring you to keep the door open for three years so I may finish up. It. I says, yeah, but at 68, somebody else will have to help me get coffee. So I'm just <laughs> losing ground all the way. You see, in order to preach this sermon with any integrity... I had to sit back and let the Lord talk to me. And I said, Lord, would it possibly be that anyone I know would come to the 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock or 5 o'clock service? I have to know in my heart I could wash their feet. No ifs. No reasons why that I could wash their feet as Jesus washes mine. And by the way, there is an R in wash. A <laughs> <laughs> man was having marriage trouble. So he went to a counselor. He said, I don't, know I, love, I don't know that I love my wife anymore. He said, the Bible tells you, love your wife. He said, I, I can't. Well, he said, then lover is a person because the Bible says we're to love one another. He said, I can't do it. He said, then lover as an enemy. 
because the Bible says you have to love your enemies. We don't get a choice. Not in his kingdom. And so the fourth, he says, and, and you will be blessed if you do them, or the fifth. Now, I just, I, I've been thinking about this for some years, and I figured it out this week. So I'm going to let you know what I learned. All right? Here, here's what I've been struggling with. If you become a believer, and then you start getting into your Bible, and you start learning, you start doing life God's way, and God blesses his way. In fact, our background is Wesleyan theology, and Wesleyan theology believes in provenient grace, which means that even for an unbeliever, God is at work in, around, and through their life. So if I'm a believer, and now I start to do things God's way, God blesses his way. And so it starts, I see, so I start seeing the fruit of that in my marriage and the fruit of that in my life and there's stability and there's just a lot of things that come to me because God honors his way and if I live his way, he honors that. But if you know anything about Israel, one of the things you discover is the more they did things God's way and the more God blessed them, the more they felt different than the people that weren't. And that would cause pride and then would be their downfall. And I thought, how, how do you get to where you're a believer and God's blessing you, but it doesn't distance you from others? Because in the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus is always moving towards us emptying himself to identify with us. So he's closing the gap. But for many believers, how we live actually widens the gap between us and others. Now what is that? I figured that out. If I get to where I'm living this way, and then there are the other. The other. Whenever I get someone to the place where they're the other, I can start treating them differently. They, it's not me, it's you. I'm this, you're not. So the Pharisee goes to church and he goes with a tax collector. And the Pharisee, who was by all outward accounts a devout follower of God, starts by saying, I'm glad that I am not an adulterer, a robber, an evildoer. I'm this. They're other than this. In fact, he said, I am a tither. And I do these religious things. Again, I'm this, and they are other. And here is what Israel forgot. I may be other than you in my calling, as you are other than me in your calling. But I am never other 
than you in my need. I am never other than you in my need. No matter how close I walk with God, no matter how much I live by his ways, when it comes to me being before the cross in need of a Savior, I am never other than you. And on your worst day, in your greatest humiliation and deepest failure, matched against one of my best days, my need is still equal to yours. And when I remove other from my life, as Jesus did here, then it doesn't become difficult to put a towel on and to kneel and fill a basin with water and do a task that many slaves would not do. Because you are not other I would do anything for my children and you are not other than them or other than me. And the reason the church in America for every one coming in loses four is because they've lost confidence in our product. They know in their heart this is not an enterprise of power. It is a declaration of servanthood. As I have done, you do, says Jesus. And you will be blessed if you do that. Let's bow our heads. Would you close your eyes with me? and We're going to just take a moment and pray. Perhaps you this morning needed to know that God carries around a picture of you in his billfold. Stuff's happened in your life. You've been disheartened by it. You've been disappointed in yourself. You've disappointed others. You hurt. Others hurt. And you think I didn't even know he had a picture of me. But surely he wouldn't have, in his, have it in his billfold now. And the Lord tells you he does. So there's one of me. I created this person in my image. With our heads bowed, you can just pray. You could say, Lord, I am sorry for what's gone on in my life. thank you for loving me to the uttermost to the point that you even carry around a picture of me forgive me come into my heart in a fresh way renew my spirit Remind me of that kind of love. If you want to pray a prayer just like that in your own words, we're just going to wait for a bit with our heads bowed.
you just talk to the Lord. none of us looking around but just to honor the Lord if you're praying a prayer like that would you just slip your hand up and put it down and say you know I've, I've asked the Lord to renew his life in me yeah right here on the left you bet two or three on my right halfway down over here on my right you bet back here I see that yeah Anybody else? The Lord's just waiting for you just to slip your hand up. Yeah, right there. You bet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindnesses to us. We all need you. There are no other in this room. We all stand on level ground before the cross. For these who slip their hands up, I pray that you will not only rush grace to them, which is your power in time of need, but Lord, allow something physical to happen, to see a verse, to hear a person's voice, to cement into their life the commitment they've made this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.